You are entering the Freedom Hut. Omarosa's book of lies, half-truths, and misdirection. Oh, there's more today, my friends. We'll talk about that. Plus, meeting against Trump. A hundred newspapers are going to write an editorial against the president. No shock, but worth discussing. And then, what does the struck firing really tell us about how deep the rot goes in the deep state? That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here. Coming to you live from the swamp. Oh, it is so swampy. I actually just uh, went over and had a chance to join Eric Bowling on his new show over on CRTV. Uh, I believe Eric wrote a book about the swamp. And we got to chat a bit about what's going on down here in D.C. I, I like the, the, the conservatives and the Trump people that are down here in D.C. with me. We all feel the same way about it. We all, we all feel like aliens in a foreign land you know we we realize that even though our guy is in the white house and even though our party has a majority in the congress dc is a a liberal enclave of insanity and it's reflective i think of many of the worst progressive tendencies and you see this with the nastiness to people who work for the administration at restaurants and the the political monoculture that exists here where you're not allowed to have a different point of view, and in fact they try to enforce a kind of left-wing solidarity culturally, and you know there there are stories about how they the the much fabled DC cocktail party circuit is in the dumps because all the famous and fancy hosts and hostesses with the big mansions in Georgetown and Colorado, and this is all I told you this is an old cliche, right? That there's not enough people now to go to them from the Trump administration because no one wants to invite them or that they won't go. One or the other is probably both. And uh, I think this is a good thing. I think the business of the American people should be business. I think that the government needs to be a lot smaller. I think the government needs to have a much lesser sense of its own importance. It should be service. It also should, in many cases, probably be temporary. And this uh, idea of D.C. not as a place full of government servants, but as our overseers, those who make it all work and make the decisions for us, uh, that's got to go. That's part of the mentality that I think we need to uh, combat, and I think that Trump is doing that. And that's why Trump's success in all this is so troubling to these left-wing swampers, uh, the swampsters, whatever we call them, swamp dwellers. Because they've been telling themselves for a very long time that their attitudes, their approach to life, their the powers that they have either taken for themselves or that they have been given uh, over the American people is justified because they know more than us. So this is the the center of the collectivist mindset right now can be found in the D.C. federal bureaucracy and in the Democrat Party that has overtaken it. So that's just a a quick note on what's going on in in Swamp Town. And then you have what the media is focusing on. So many different 
stories that, and by the way, we'll talk about Iran policy later on. I might even get into what's going on with Turkey. You've got the possibility of economic contagion, they're saying, from Turkey to India. Um, and, you know, Trump is, I think, making an example of Turkey for everybody else. He's saying, look, Turkey's, Turkey steps out of line, kidnaps, a, well, arrests, but it's basically kidnapping, holding them as hostage hostages. Uh, Turkey steps out of line, Turkey gets slapped down. You know, who's next? It's a much more effective approach to deal with authoritarians and strong men and and bad statist governments around the world than sending them a strongly worded letter from the U.N. We have much to get into there, though. And I have more thoughts, by the way, on the the Strzok situation after yesterday. I did nothing wrong. I'm Peter Strzok. Um, But let's start with Amorosa a little bit because I view this more as a story about the media than a story about Omarosa. This woman is making all these accusations and saying all this stuff that if it were anyone other than Trump being accused, we would be told, hey, you know, this this sounds like nonsense. It sounds like somebody has gone through, sifted through the comment section of the Huffington Post and the Daily Coast and these other left wing, you're like, fuck, what are these sites? Don't worry, you don't have to. I read them so you don't have to. Gone through them and picked out the craziest allegations about Trump that they can. And then made claims publicly using her access to the president to give them some veneer of credibility that this is what happened. Um, now... This is what Omarosa, who has now inflicted herself upon American political discourse. She, she is now such a big part of the news cycle, folks, that I, I would be remiss to ignore her and her allegations against the president. She's being used as a weapon against this administration. I don't like that we have to play defense sometimes, but the, the other side has got a bunch of crazies. And they're going to take us down unless we fight back. You know, there's a re- people always say, oh, why is Trump so petty? Why does he respond to this reporter or that reporter? And I say, you know, I remember what it was like for eight years of the Bush administration. Bush just getting slapped in the face by everybody and anybody in the media and the Democratic Party and going, well, oh, shucks, you know, I don't want to be mean. And Enough. Enough of that. And we can't let the media in mid-August, you know, when things really quiet down because everybody's in Nantucket and the Hamptons, in the media and in the uh, political elite class. Can't let them get away with using this while they can, as they can, to hurt the president, because they're going to move on from this, because there's no there's no verification for any of this. There's no validation. This is It's lies. She's lying, and the media is eating it up, because they love, they love lies about Trump. Anything that's bad about Trump, they'll go for it. But the, this is Omarosa, then, play clip one. Donald Trump is a very kind person. He has a really good heart. I spend time with him and his children and his family. And you can look at his family and see how close knit they are. He's not going anywhere. He has staying power. Ask me if I would vote for him. I mean, I'm a journalist, first and foremost. But I'm also interested in watching this political process unfold. He's like the Tiger Woods of politics. In my personal experience, Craig, which is why you have me here, um, I have never seen Donald Trump act inappropriately with women. He's always been very respectful. I stand with Donald Trump because I know that he has an incredible vision for this country and he will in, indeed make America great, not just for this group or that group, but for everyone. You know, make America great for everyone, she said. 
Now what kind of stuff is she saying? Play it. Amorose, if you have any other recordings, you wouldn't share them here. Do you got some? Oh, I have plenty. Anything Mueller would like to see? I, Robert Mueller? If he, if he, if his office calls again, would you be a good witness want, in this investigation by Mueller? Absolutely. Anything that they want, I will certain certainly. Do you think corroborate. Trump should be impeached? Uh, at this point, yes. Trump should be impeached, she says. I mean, can she say anything else that's going to get Chris Matthews to get a thrill up his leg? I mean, is there anything else that she could say that would really just play into all the media biases about Trump? I don't know. She's saying it all. Trump, Trump should be impeached. Trump is an idiot. Trump is a liar. Trump is mean. Trump said the N-word. Oh, yes, that's the big allegation now. That the president of the United States said the N-word. Um, that doesn't withstand much scrutiny because, first of all, who did he say it to? Under what circumstances did he say it? Why is it this, well, maybe she heard it, maybe she didn't hear it. Maybe she heard the tape of it. Oh, no, she heard somebody say that they heard it on a tape. This is the kind of thing that if it had happened, folks, you would know about it. You know, if I asked you who hit you in the back of the head with a two by four one day on the way to work, you'd remember that incident. You wouldn't be like, well, I don't remember if that happened. And if you had heard the president of the United States or even before that, if you had just been Donald Trump, a very famous person, say that word, you would remember it. You would know when it was. You would know the context of it. And why not come forward with it right now? But by keeping it murky, you see, it is an allegation that can't be disproven, just like the Mueller probe, by the way. This is what they've resorted to with Trump. Insinuation, allegation, rumor, conspiracy. You know, they're, they're, they're not saying it happened. They're just not saying it didn't happen. I mean, can, can you prove that they that he didn't ever say this? Well, then he might have said it. This is a part of the of derangement, though. Trump derangement syndrome. When your main allegations revolve around what cannot be disproven in principle, then then you've got a very... Very serious psychological issue, I think. Uh, Then you've really lost the plot. You've lost all contact with reason and reality. And that's really where we are. In fact, there's a Daily Beast reporter who uh, approached the issue, uh, dealt with the issue. Azawin Subasang. That name, I cannot cannot pronounce the last name. Apologies on that one. but spoke about Omarosa's claim of an N-word being said by the president. And here's what this Daily Beast reporter had to uh, had to share on uh, play three. Back during the campaign and up uh, through the presidential transition in uh, late 2016, I actually looked into this because it's been a longstanding rumor since yeah. the days of the campaign yeah. that there is a Donald Trump N-word tape dating back to his days at The Apprentice. Okay. Um, I talked to... Uh, Dozens upon dozens of people at The Apprentice for a series of stories or who used to work at The Apprentice. Some still do, some don't anymore, uh, to sort of get Donald Trump-related stories as the campaign was wrapping up. Uh, We published a lot of them, some of which made Donald Trump look pretty nasty. I couldn't find a single person who knew what the hell people were talking about when it came to this mythical mythical N-word tape. And so far, that's still the case based on my reporting and the reporting of other people, including Yashar Ali, the Huffington Post, who popped a story, I think, about nine or ten hours ago, where the person who Omarosa had claimed to people had come to the White House and played her a tape of Donald Trump saying uh, that racial epithet, sort of laughed on the phone. It's like, no, what, what is Omarosa talking about? She's a liar. 
I've been told by numerous people today in D.C., because I am now here in close proximity to the White House and can talk to people in the White House and get a sense of what's going on. I've been told by numerous sources, look, Omarosa is just a liar. And they all kind of roll their eyes. I'll be honest with you, folks. They all roll their eyes like, you know, uh, Trump shouldn't have brought her in. It was not a good idea. And John Kelly sniffed out the nonsense right away and showed her the door. And thank heavens for that. You know, clearly bringing in the general was the right move. But think about how damaging this is, folks. A lot of people are going to hear this allegation from Omarosa that the media has given tremendous credibility to now. Um, and a lot of our, our fellow Americans who are black are going to hear this and say that, that they're going to believe the president said it. And that's going to stay with them. And that's going to change their thinking and you know we've just started to see this surge in black support for the president we've just we've seen i think a doubling in recent polling or close to it of of black americans who support the president of the united states and i i do think that there's a a real urgency among the democrats to stamp that out right away i mean the the worst fear the democrats have is that you start to see large-scale support from the black community for Trump because he's bringing uh, jobs into their communities, because he's showing them results that make their lives a little better, make their lives a little easier, allow them to pursue their dreams and their destiny. Uh, And Democrats hate that, right? Because Democrats prefer the model of, let's just assume that all black people with, you know, 5% or so exception, but, you know, over 90% of black people are going to vote Democrat. And doesn't matter that Democrat-run cities are a disgrace, that Democrat-run schools are terrible, the Democrat policies and uh, Democrat statism and welfareism has done nothing but harm all minority communities. Yeah, that's, that's their, their fear, is that Trump starts to break that stranglehold on uh, the minority vote that Democrats have. And so they'll, they'll jump on this story with Omarosa as much as they already have. They'll keep running with it. And by the time, we really, by the time this is all disproven, the damage will have already been done, and that's what I think is so discouraging about it. By the time it's clear that Omarosa is just, I mean, she's just, all this stuff she's throwing out there is, it's like she heard she heard rumors about what people say Trump did or said, and just, oh yeah, I, I heard him do that. I saw him do that. You know, if she was so horrified by all this, she should have resigned. She didn't resign. She's a complete and utter opportunist, and the media and her are symbiotically opportunistic with each other now. Very distressing. Um, but we'll stay on this one, folks. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We have a, a whole lot more show. I, I, I want to talk to you for sure about this this idea of 100 newspapers writing an editorial about Trump's rhetoric. These people are crazy, okay? They really have lost it. Trump is much less an enemy of press freedom, not just than presidents before him were, than Obama was. Oh, I'll make that case, and I'll win. You got to stay with me. The, the president of this has 
uh, absolutely nothing to do with race and everything to do uh, with the president uh, calling out someone's lack of integrity. Uh, the idea that you would only point a few of the uh, things that the president has said negative uh, about people that are minorities. The fact is the president's um, an equal opportunity uh, person that calls things like he sees it. He always fights fire with fire, and he certainly doesn't hold back on doing that across the board. The individuals in this room continue to create a large platform for somebody they know not to have a lot of credibility, for someone they frankly refused to give a, a platform to when they worked here at the White House. Uh, it wasn't until this individual started to negatively attack this president and this administration uh, and try to tear this uh, entire place down that she received the type of platform and rollout that she's getting. I think it would be great if every single person in this room uh, and every single person in the administration never had to talk about this again, and we actually got to focus on the real policies and the real things that not matter just to uh, people in this building, but certainly all Americans, African Americans, Hispanics, and everybody in between. I think that would be the best thing that we could certainly do for our country. Amen to that. Totally true. Sarah Huckabee Sanders has a tough job. You know, I used to, I used to sit around and joke around, although I was kind of serious, that I would have been a great White House press secretary for Trump, but man, it's... It's rough these days. It's a lonely road. Not a, not a fun one, given the way the media treats her, the way the the Democrats in America are treating her. But, you know, there's one part of this that I have to say I'm, I'm even a little... I, I, I can't use the word surprise. It's just it's disappointing once again. And and that is that this, this is... It's not enough to say that Omarosa's allegations are credible, to treat them as credible... It's not enough to give her a huge platform for the sale of her smear book. But you've also seen a lot of people making the claim that Donald Trump, in his tweet about Omarosa, uh, is racist. They're saying that Donald Trump is racist because he referred to Omarosa as a, uh, at the end of a, of a tweet, as a dog. And I'm hearing this from a lot of people. They're saying, oh, Here's here's yet another instance. Um, you know, Trump's that dog attack on Omarosa is the latest insult aimed at an African-American. They want to make that about race, too. I mean, I can sit here and courtesy of my friend Sean Davis tell you that uh, here's a list of people that Trump has also referred to publicly as a dog. Mitt Romney, David Gregory, Chuck Todd, Steve Bannon, Glenn Beck, Bill Maher, Eric Erickson, Rick Tyler, David Axelrod, Kristen Stewart. Those are all white people. So how is it that dog all of a sudden is a racial slur or a dog whistle of some kind? I, I do need someone to explain that logic to me. I mean, you could say that he shouldn't call any woman a dog. Fine. I wish the president wouldn't do that either. But let's not pretend that it's racist just because it's Trump. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So we've heard from the president uh, via Twitter on Omarosa describing her as crazed, a crying lowlife, a dog. Is this any way for a president to talk about any American, let alone somebody that he hired and made the highest ranking African-American woman that served in his White House? What the Trump campaign is doing is he's forcing her essentially to... Uh, defend herself and potentially even pay damages. Why is that necessary? 
Why did he hire her? I mean, why did he hire somebody he's describing as a dog? Pattern of insulting prominent African-Americans, people he's taken, uh, criticized recently include John Lemon, Mexican Waters. He's claimed that football players protesting racial injustice don't know what they're protesting. Sarah, have you asked the president if he's ever used the N-word? Have you asked him directly, Sarah? Why haven't you asked him directly? Uh, again, the stand at the podium and guarantee the American people they'll never hear Donald Trump utter the N-word on a recording in any context. Just to be clear, you can't guarantee it. Can I go back to the race question again? There's our, our stalwart press corps asking the questions America needs to know. Same question, pretty much, over and over again. Is Trump a racist? Is Trump a racist? Hey, is Trump a racist? Is Trump a racist? There are other things going on in the world than slanderous allegations about the president. You'll notice how little they really can do on Trump's record because it's going so well so far, because he's doing such a good job as a president. I do not seek a president who is a preschool teacher who's going to tell my kids, you know, how to be. I, some people I know, people feel differently about that. They have this, no, you know, the president's like the father of the nation to them, and they feel very, you know, emotionally tied to his every word and action. I just want a good executive in charge of the United States government so that things are going well, so the American people can live their lives. I don't obsess over every word, every tweet, everything that Trump says, or any other president says for that matter, because ultimately we shouldn't all care that much. I think that's one of the big problems here, folks is that we've been led to believe that we have to care so much about everything going on with politicians. Everything that an administration says, every utterance, every statement. When really, I just want to see what the results are. I want the pursuit of sound policies. I want the execution of government that is limited in scope, but that is at least efficient at what it's supposed to do. And successful as much as government can be. That's it. I don't need government to be my best friend. I don't need it to give me a warm hug. I don't need it to be my buddy and tell me that everything's going to be okay. I've got friends and a great family for that. Right? A lot of you feel the same way, I'm sure. You're even luckier than me because you probably have a dog, and I haven't gotten a dog yet, which makes me sad. It's going to happen. Um, but, you know, they just want to focus in on all this stuff with with uh, Omarosa, I can't, I can't get her name. It's Omarosa or Omarosa. I say it both ways. I'm sorry that I switch back and forth. I know it's Menards, not Menards. And it's, I think, Omarosa. Um, but the, the big thing here, as I said, is the, the disparity between what the White House wants to talk about and focus on as a matter of policy and what the media wants to focus on. They just want to find some validation of their hatred of this president. That's their daily routine. That's what they're really interested in. And that's why Sarah Huckabee Sanders is up there having to um, deal with someone saying that someone said something at some point in history that nobody can actually prove or even say when it happened or how it happened. I mean, this is a new level of unfair undermining, isn't it? You know, they've gone from Russia collusion. Oh, you don't think this is an accident, folks. Don't think that this is just happenstance russia collusion goes it starts to fade in the background we see struck we see mccabe we see page we see comey we see Orr, we see yates all of them scummy anti-trump deep state left behind cabalsters and now the narrative changes from that to oh that's right trump's a racist oh and it just so happens that this coincides with the 
week of the Charlottesville remembrance and right these are not accidents why do we think that there was so much attention given over the weekend to a, a protest rally with 20 people because they're really hoping to make something of this right they want to switch the narrative now from Trump is a traitor a Kremlin puppet despite the fact that he's tougher on Russia objectively factually than Obama was in eight years Despite the fact that he's getting more results in 18 months than Obama and his team of self-righteous clowns could get in eight years. They want to say that he's a Kremlin puppet and he does he does Putin's bidding, but they shift from that now to, oh, he's also a racist. Oh, and also also a a sexual harasser. We'll, We'll get into that in a moment. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders had to deal with. The the supposed uh, the N word allegations. Here's how that went. Play 20. This is somebody who has been in business uh, for decades. And you're just now hearing some of these outrageous accusations after the fact he's dealt with people all over the world. It wasn't until he became a candidate for president that you started to hear some of these salacious uh, and ridiculous claims. And certainly, I think if you look at uh, the actions that this president has taken, certainly the policies that he's enacted, you can see the heart of who he is and you can see exactly uh, what he has done and the type of president in person he is look donald trump's just not a racist they can say it as much as they want and it it really makes me sad when i hear people that i know friends of mine in the black community uh who who they really do believe they believe he's racist and i ask them i say why and then there's always this of course he is how how do you not see it and I, i say why what has he done that makes him a racist why do you believe this what actions has he taken? What what word? Oh, because he because he says that Don Lemon is stupid. Don Lemon is stupid. It has nothing to do with Don Lemon's race. Don Lemon's just not very smart. Why why do we have to sit around and pretend? You know who who else? Because he gets into spats with a handful of NFL players who can't figure out that there there are some things the country's still more unified on than the need to play into minority uh, grievance politics and support for the flag and for veterans and for our troops is one of them. So if, if NFL players can't figure that out, and by the way, they've also, they keep shifting the ground, right? Oh, it, it was, it was about cops killing black men and black lives matter. And now it's just more about raising awareness. You know, the, the ground is always shifting on this. The moment you get them in, you get them in a position where they have to defend one thing and then it's something else, right? Kaepernick wears pigs in police hats on his socks, but, you know, he's not being disrespectful or anything. That means that he's a racist? Well, that means that 70% of the country is racist or whatever it is that disagrees with the kneeling or that doesn't think that it's respectful, 60%, I don't know, whatever the number is. But what's more likely? I keep returning to this. What is more, what is more plausible in the real world? That Trump is a traitor working with the Russians, that Trump has uh, committed all kinds of financial crimes, don't forget that, and that's why he won't release his taxes, that Trump is a racist, that Trump is a serial sexual assaulter, that Trump is crazy uh, and not of sound mind. I'm trying to think what else is in there. Uh, that Trump has never read a book, that Trump is, you know, eats cheeseburgers and sits around in a robe all day and watches 15 hours a day of TV. I mean, these are all the things. That, what's more likely, that, that this is true of the man who is running the country better than his uh, Harvard Law-educated predecessor did for eight years. Remember, Trump also went to Wharton. That always gets left out of all this, but, you know. 
I think that's kind of funny. They, they act like Trump just, you know, came straight out of the uh, the back room of some billiards hall somewhere with like a bunch of Cheetos in one hand and a bunch of beer in the other. And it's like, I want to be president. But um, the guy's a billionaire who went to an Ivy League school as well. So he understands the elites. And you see, that's that's really what bothers them so much about Trump is that he's a class traitor. He has betrayed the elites by no, he knows who they are. And he's supposed to play by their rules. He's supposed to be on their side. That's how they think about it. But because he doesn't do that, now they're throwing everything they can at him. And, and I come back to this. Is it more likely that Trump is all those things, a traitor, crazy, a racist, a rapist, a, a crook, a thief, all of those things, because those are accusations that are made by supposedly serious people, or are Democrats and progressives a bunch of crybabies who can't handle what's really going on in the world, who won't accept that Obama was not the genius they pretended he was, that he was not the savior that they were telling telling us he was every day, that the media destroyed its reputation by walking around, giving Obama the equivalent of a back rub every day with their editorials and with their news coverage. It was an embarrassment. It was a joke. And Trump just came along and told us the truth about this. And now we can finally say it out loud. Now we don't have to pretend like there's some special magic about Cooper or Tapper or... uh, What's this? The little, the the little short. Uh, Steph, uh, I was gonna say Papadopoulos, Stephanopoulos. You know, there's nothing about these guys other than their fat paychecks that makes them unique. In fact, they're part of a system that has been engaged in a long-standing fraud, and the fraud is that they don't have a bias, that they don't have a point of view, that they're just bringing you the news, just the facts. It's a lie, and the ones who are the most sanctimonious about it, by the way. Tapper, Stephanopoulos, uh, they're the worst, actually. Because they're, they're, they're pushing propaganda all the time. They just pretend that, oh, they're just, just journalists here, just journalists. No point of view. Not presenting an agenda. We're not activists. Sure, buddy. Sure you aren't. I, you know, if, if what Trump was saying about them wasn't true, they wouldn't be so upset. And oh, by the way, then there's also the results component of this. Not only do they say all these lies about Trump all the time, They don't want to deal with what's really going on in the country. Play clip 19. This is a president who uh, is fighting for all Americans, who is putting policies in place that help all Americans, particularly African-Americans. Just look at the economy alone. This president, since he took office in the year and a half that he's been here, has created 700,000 new jobs for African-Americans. That's 700,000 African-Americans that are working now that weren't working when this president took place. When President Obama left after eight years in office, eight years in office, he had only created eight. 800 or 195,000 jobs for African-Americans. President Trump in his first year and a half has already tripled what President Obama did in eight years. Not only did he do that for African-Americans, but for Hispanics, 1.7 million more Hispanics are working now. This is a president who cares about all Americans, who is committed to helping them and is putting policies in place that actually do that. And all of that truth, my friends, is why they hate him so much. He's not supposed to be better for minority communities in terms of employment than Obama was. Obama was our great savior. Obama was going to slow the rise of the seas. Now, they haven't forgotten, of course, that Trump was unwilling to genuflect to Obama back when he was president. The media is very upset about this. My friends, they are in the narrative creation business. They are not just bringing you information and letting you decide what's, what's important, what's not beyond that. They're presenting you with a narrative that always 
places those who are making that narrative very high on the list of priorities for this country. You'll notice that, too. Uh, journalists have incredibly high opinions of themselves. I think that it's amazing that so many of them can run the scams they do to be as untalented as they are, get as much attention and make as much money as they do. When I see more impressive people day to day cooking food, opening doors and fixing toilets than I see on TV channels across the country talking about the news. They hate Trump because it's working. And what is their answer for that? Oh, he's he's all these terrible things. Just venom and hatred and bile. And you notice that they, they can't even really come up with what he's doing wrong on policy. They just disapprove of his very existence as president. I've got some follow-ups on Antifa, speaking of disapproving, uh, that I wanted to get to today. We will discuss that. And then this hundred newspapers all colluding against Trump. That's a discussion worth having. And people calling for a boycott of Sam Adams. Producer Mike, what is this all about? This is crazy. Calling for a boycott of Sam Adams because he uh, said his, the tax cuts helped his company. This is so, so uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into this. This is so Soviet. You, you can't even tell the truth. You're not even allowed to state objective reality about what the president has done that's good without getting in trouble now. And, and they think we're the crazy ones, folks. They think you and I have something wrong with us. Wow. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Much, much more show coming, team. Stay with me. I'm sure, look, we, we've all had enough of, of uh, Omarosa Palooza, right? So we're, we're, we want to get past that. And, uh, and and I will, I promise, the next hour we've got lots of other stuff to talk about. Uh, the left defending big journalists like Bro Cuomo defending Antifa. Antifa! Do we have that somewhere on the board? I always like that one. Oh. Antifa! There we go. Thank you. Um, but I wanted to finish off our Omarosa's. Amorosa discussion, hopefully once and for all, although it's useful for bashing Trump, just like that guy. Remember, Fire and Fury, Michael Wolf made a lot of money. That guy wrote that book, Fire and Fury, and then they figured out, wait a second, this guy is total, total scum and was willing to, with just no evidence and no one believed him, and it was a complete farce, insinuate that there was some kind of a sexual relationship between Trump and Nikki Haley, which is just a horrifying thing to say that nobody believed. Nobody, even even people who hate Trump were like, that's no, no, that's not. Come on, you can't do that. Because it really also it, it defamed Nikki Haley completely unfairly. Um, so there's there's that part of this. Uh, but it, it, it took that until people finally backed off. And now um, I think we're going to reach that point with Omarosa uh, soon if we're not already there. Uh, but here's what she says about about Trump with women, play 22. Did you feel like you were harassed by him in the White House for being a woman? Harassed in a sexual way at any point? Did he harass anybody in a sexual way? Any Me Too moments? Uh, I don't know that I would characterize them as Me Too, but I saw in your book, for instance, where he grabs you and he kissed you without you welcoming that. He did that very often with women, anytime he wanted. He's very physical. He would grab women, kiss them unsolicited, anytime, any day. Hmm. 
You've heard that before, of course, about Trump. So that's one another thing that Omarosa is saying that is going to get her attention from the media. And then there's the Mueller probe, because if she really wants their attention, got to throw something in there. Play 23. Have you been interviewed by the special counsel? I have. Tapes that Robert Mueller could be interested in. He might want to call you again. What sort of tapes would he be interested in? You know, if he calls me, I certainly will um, participate with anything that he needs. I'll provide him with what he needs. But that's the extent that I can talk about. But, but you said he's interested. That's, that's, that's dangling something. Can you give us a little bit more? That's information. I will just say this, that um, there's a lot of corruption that went on both in the campaign and in the White House. And I'm going to blow the whistle on all of it. She's going to blow the whistle on all of it. Don't hold your breath, folks. Don't hold your breath. I think that, that you're going to wait a long time for that whistle. Kind of like when that waiting a long time for that collusion evidence to show up. I think it's going to be quite a while. Uh, we're going to talk about the left actually defending Antifa coming up. If you need a boost to get through your day, whether it's right before you're heading to the gym, going out for a run, or just to push through those TPS reports sitting at your desk in the office, Strike Force Energy is for you, my friends. Strike Force is veteran-owned and American-made, and it is an energy drink, an energy liquid that you can add to 16 to 20 ounces of water, tea, lemonade, anything you want. It'll add a delicious and give you a tremendous boost. It's available in four flavors, has zero sugar or calories, only the finest ingredients, folks. Check it out for yourself, because Strike Force also is all about giving back to America's troops overseas. For every for every packet you buy of Strike Force, when you go to StrikeForceEnergy.com and enter discount code Buck at checkout, you will uh, be donating effectively via Strike Force a packet to military members around the globe. So go to StrikeForceEnergy.com, use the discount code Buck at checkout. For every packet you buy, there'll be one donated to military service members overseas. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. I know I know. I said we were done with Omarosa, but we got a caller who wants to weigh in on this one. Stan in Mississippi. Hey, Stan. Hey, hey Buck. I know, I know it's Twitter, and you know how that goes, but word on the street is Omarosa worked for Al Gore when he was vice president for Clinton. Yeah, she most certainly did. That is a true statement. So this is not even the first White House she has been invited. Well, my God, you know Trump knew all this before he ever got her in there. She was a plant. You know, Stan, I, I just, I don't know if Trump's, you know, I don't know if she got to him because of Trump's ego or because of his sense of loyalty or a combination. But, you know, with this one, this was a, this is an own goal, you know, and, and I give the president credit for all the good stuff he's doing and all the unfair stuff he's up against. Look, this isn't a big deal, but this was not, not great. Not great. I mean, the mooch, Scaramucci. Nobody knows you're going to call up. You're going to call up a report and be like, "Hey, bada bing, bleep bleep bleep, bada bing." You know, like no one knows that someone's going to do that until the mooch did it. Uh, but with Omarosa, they had plenty of warning. I think you know that too. Yeah. So, well, I just wanted to let you know I didn't know that. Now that you've confirmed it for me, I think. Uh, oh yeah. No, that's that's true. Stan, Stan Shields, hi. Thank you for calling in. Let me tell you a bit more about this. Uh, this is from. Carrie Pickett. Oh, I know Carrie. She's over at the Daily Caller. 
quote, the Trump White House is not the first to be unsatisfied with the work performance of Omarosa Manigault, the former senior Trump staffer who already released secretly recorded conversations she had with the president and chief of staff John Kelly. Despite Omarosa's complaints that she was poorly treated in the Trump White House during her tenure as one of the highest paid staffers there, former numerous staffers for Vice President Al Gore's office told the New York Times last year that she was a terrible employee for the then vice president. During her days on Trump's NBC program, The Apprentice, People magazine reported in 2004 that she held four jobs within two years when she worked for the Clinton administration. At 24 years of age, she scored an entry-level $25,000 per year post applying to invitations for the vice president. According to the Times, she left a mound of 13 months' worth of unanswered correspondence addressed to Gore below her desk. People magazine reported a former staffer saying, quote, she didn't do her job and she got everybody in trouble. She was the worst hire we ever made. Mary Overby, Gore's former office administrator, told the Times. Wow. That's that's pretty definitive, folks. The worst hire we've ever made. That was but you see, you're probably wondering, Buck, I don't understand. Why is there all this reporting out there on her? You know, because this obviously undermines her now. Oh, but you see, this is when she was in the Trump White House and they were trying to undermine Trump's entire staff. And just trash everybody. And so that reporting, uh, that was, I mean, the information in there uh, came via the New York Times, a lot of it. The New York Times reported on this. Oh. I can't believe they actually had uh, Priebus as the chief. Priebus was the chief of staff. That's kind of amazing when you think about it. I, I, I do not think the guy was really up for that one. But anyway, I don't know, Reince. I've heard he's a nice guy. But I don't think he I don't think he was ready to be Trump's chief of staff. I think that's fair. All right. So I said I said we're going to limit the Omarosa talk. We're going to have uh, limits on on that one because there's other things. That uh, I think deserve attention, you know, today on. My Hill, uh, my Hill TV show where, you know, it's a left right show. It, it's like Hannity and Combs back in the day. And you can figure out who you think is Hannity and who you think is Combs. But we're trying that it's different, different format. And I have to deal with, uh, you know, a fair amount of liberals. And recently I had to show professional uh, manners to a guy who came over from, not Media Matters, which is, you know, just for me, uh, a step above like a, you know, a jihadist group in terms of how much I despise them. Um, but this group, Right Wing Watch, which I think I've actually popped up in some of their articles. So I've got that going for me, which is nice. Uh, but he looked like he was very, very nervous, and I didn't want him to have some kind of an episode. So I didn't I didn't push him all too hard on what he had to say. Um, but then today we had somebody from the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a fascinating little organization because, you know, they, they talk about journalists abroad. And I say, that's, you know, that's good. We should... Uh, we should certainly spend some time thinking about how we can make uh, the world more open and, and fair and free when it comes to journalists and, and the First Amendment. And I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all about it, right? That's great. 
But what they've been doing lately, kind of like the Southern Poverty Law Center, is they become a left-wing outfit under the guise of just being a, an issue organization. So you got the Southern Poverty Law Center, which ever I'll tell you this, they've become just a left-wing uh, a, a left-wing group that attacks anybody that is in the crosshairs of of progressivism, right? Anybody that the progressives don't like, but they've got a war chest with hundreds of millions of dollars in it and they're all lawyers, so people tend not to deal with them, mess with them that they just don't want to have to handle the the blowback from the Southern Poverty Law Center. So you got you got that going on. Um, but this group, the Community Protect Journalists, a little a little less left wing. But we have one of their people here today. If she has a PhD, which is very nice for her, and we talked a bit about this. And they're worried about Trump's rhetoric. You see, it's Trump's fault. And this is a this is another one of these things you hear. It's another one of the talking points. It's Trump's fault that foreign dictators are talking about fake news. Meanwhile. They've been talking about how the press lies and, and there's conspiracies and stuff for as long as there's been a press. So there's no, none of this is new at all. But if there's a way to tie any malfeasance around the globe to President Trump, you know our press will do it. And they do do it. Okay. So I, I sat down with her and, and with, with Crystal, my co-host, and I just had to note that they're worried about, and this is going to tie in in a few minutes to, to a couple things. One, the Antifa and journalists, and then we'll talk about this effort to write some editorial all the newspapers are getting together i think the washington post is actually sitting this one out but a lot of you know a hundred newspapers getting together to, to criticize trump and his rhetoric because that's really going to convince people that the media is not out to get trump uh we'll get to that and also the the, the role that anti or what the media has been saying about antifa since this all happened but i'm sitting down next to this woman from the committee to protect journalists and i say okay what can you tell me about the assaults on journalists that happened in Washington, D.C., a few blocks from where we were doing the interview. And she responded, uh, well, yeah, there was there are a couple of assaults against journalists, including a police officer who assaulted a journalist. And I'm like, oh, oh I, I see what we're doing here. First of all, I didn't see anything about a police officer assaulting a journalist. I mean, maybe a journalist was... Uh, was breaking some kind of ordinance and didn't like the fact the cop was trying to move him off the street or something. I didn't see any of that. I did see journalists getting punched and hit and their gear destroyed by left-wing maniacs. And I would think the Committee to Protect Journalists, which has been running around, trying to get attention for itself, saying, oh my gosh, Trump's rhetoric, it's going to inspire violence against journalists. They've been saying that. Meanwhile, hasn't happened. Jim Acosta's fine. Jim Acosta's Richer and more famous than he's ever been before, folks. He's just fine, okay? Same thing with, uh, you know, the rest of the CNN anti-Trump crew. They're all fine. It's be- This has been career-enhancing for them. They just don't like anyone challenging them publicly. They're just used to being able to use their bigger platform to punch down. They don't like when somebody punches down on them. That's what this is really about. But I asked this woman from the Committee to Protect Journalists, what about the assaults that happened over the weekend? And she immediately talks about a police assault on a journalist, which I'm sure was a non-assault, and I thought that was so telling. And she couldn't give me any specifics about the assaults on journalists in Charlottesville, the assaults on journalists here in D.C. I thought to myself, well, this seems quite strange. You've had violence against against people for doing the job of journalism, mind you, uh, in the last 72 hours, and you're not... Your, your, your group is the Committee to Protect Journalists, and this is not top of mind for you? 
You're here to tell us that Trump says mean things, therefore Erdogan is jailing journalists in Turkey? You really think that that's how this works? No, she said, oh, she said she'll look into it some more. I said, oh, okay, fine, look into it a little more. I said, well, what about the violence against journalists who were attacked and in some cases really brutally hit? I mean, they're bleeding all over the place in, in Portland. Again, oh, oh, anyone want to guess who hit them? Was it white nationalists? Was it neo-Nazis? Was it Tea Party members? Oh, no, that's right. The people who attacked journalists in Portland were also left-wing maniacs. This just seems so strange to me, folks. I thought that all the extremism was supposed to be on the right. I thought, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, all these groups, they talk about hate. And they're always talking about right-wing hate, right? That's the only hate that exists. There's no left-wing hate. One uh, One of the ironies here is that Antifa, uh, Antifa protesters. Antifa! There you go. Antifa protesters think that they are the direct ideological descendants of the anti-fascist movements in Europe that were that led up to the first the the Second World War. They think that that's their, um, they think that that's their lineage, their heritage, you know, ideologically speaking. And what's fascinating is that they, I'm sure, in many cases don't know, and certainly the media that covers them don't know, because most people I come across the media don't read a lot of books. They don't know very much. Not very smart. Uh, on the le- in the left-wing media. I, I really do mean this. It's going to sound pandery, and, it's gonna, and I know that. It's fine. But the conservatives I come across in media are much more with it and well-read and, and, and interesting. than Because mo- most of the liberals, they just get pushed along. Yeah, that's right. You're saying the right things. We'll just push you along. Conservatives have to be able to fight. They've got to know some stuff or else they're going to get squashed. But most of the uh, liberal media, I'm sure, has no idea that the true Antifa movements, uh, meaning the anti-fascist movements on the streets of Germany and, and, and France and, and other European countries, involve a lot of communists. And when you go back and look at the history of fascism and the rise of fascism in Europe, it was always that the fascists and the communists were vying for the same recruits. And the advantage that fascism had over communism, whether it was in Italy or Germany or elsewhere, was that they had nationalism. It wasn't just this international Marxist revolution situation, right? There was a nationalism that people still wanted. They wanted that sense of identity to their nation, and fascism provided them with that. But they're both statist, collectivist ideologies. And what I think is so interesting is that these Antifa protesters today aren't just opposing fascism. They're also calling for revolution, because I heard them say it, so people can't tell me they're not saying it. They're also calling for uh, violence against people that disagree with them, for claiming that that, that speech that they don't like equals violence, and they also have Marxist ideological roots. So anti-fascism historically and today is in fact linked to communism. You'll notice it's the far left that is into Antifa. It's the far left that is supporting these uh, black-clad anarchists running around the street. And they also are the same people who are often going to verbalize their support for universal health care and you know, much higher taxation and government government control of industry and redistribution of wealth and reparations and all these things. 
And I think it's fascinating that once you make that connection, then you also can begin to connect the Antifa movement to the incredible and inhumane violence of communism, which gets brushed away in so much of, of, the, of the, uh, the histories that are told to kids these days, that they learn in school, that the media thinks is true. Soviet violence was, in terms of numbers, on a, and I mean repressive political violence, was not just on a scale similar to the worst fascism in either Germany or Italy, but when you look at the numbers of the Great Purge under Stalin and what happened to the kulaks, the dekulakization process, the liquid uh, liquidization, a liquidation rather of of the kulaks and the famine in Ukraine, the millions and millions of people killed for political reasons, in many cases brutally murdered or starved to death in the name of communism. Then you also have a sense of just why these maniacs are so radical running around the streets, because that's a part of the history too. That is now their history, whether the media wants to tell you that or not. All right, I have much more for you, including uh, how the media is trying to defend Antifa. And then we'll talk about this collusion among the papers and oh, so much more. Stay with me. Two wrongs and what is right. The bigots are wrong to hit. Antifa or whomever, anarchist or malcontent or misguided, they are also wrong to hit. But fighting hate is right. And in a clash between hate and those who oppose it, those who oppose it are on the side of right. Think about it. Well, it gets worse. Do we have more of that one? Oh, we got to get more of that. that that's, that's bro Cuomo. It's like, hey, hate versus, you know, the good people. Uh, he's somebody who, just so you know, one of these imbeciles who tweets out uh, the D-Day landing. You know, this was a while back during some of the Antifa stuff. On August 16th of 2017, he tweeted out, anti-fascists disrupting a large gathering of white supremacists uh, and the D-Day landing. You know, because the D-Day landing and fighting Nazis in World War II, that's similar to a bunch of uh underemployed malcontents running around punching reporters and breaking windows and screaming about revolution. There's a lot more crazies on the left, folks, than there are on the right. It's just a fact. They're all over the country. They're all over. You see Antifa in all these different cities. These Black Lives Matter protesters, a lot of them hate the cops. I was there. I saw it. I've been there many times, okay? They have been told. They have been trained to despise police officers Black, white, Asian, male, female, doesn't matter. They hate all cops. But they want to be taken seriously as a political movement that wants you know, reform and police and community relations to improve. Now, they hate the cops. But this justification of Nazi punching, which is what they call it uh, by Cuomo, or this soft peddling of Nazi punching is deeply troubling because I need you guys to all understand this. They think anybody who supports Trump is, is basically kind of sort of a Nazi. They think that white supremacy now just means uh, wh- whatever they want it to mean. I can't even find a, a real definition of what white supremacy in the left-wing canon currently is defined as. I think it's the structure of white uh, advancement and power in society over other groups or something that is structural and institutionalized and historically based. I, I don't know. 
I, I used to think white supremacy was people that thought that white people were better than other people based on their skin color. Pretty straightforward. A grotesque and an evil thing to think. But now white supremacy is, you know, yeah, we should have more police in that dangerous neighborhood. Oh, that's white supremacy. No, I just thought that the cops would be able to stop innocent people from being you know, murdered and raped and be able to go to school and go to work and not be harmed by gangbangers. I, I, I thought that's no, no, no. It's white supremacy now, you see. Oh, OK. What about being upset about uh, Asians being discriminated against in college admissions? Uh, that's white supremacy, too. I need someone to explain that one to me. But, you know, the, the, the Cuomo line here on this from CNN is one you hear from a lot of places, which is, you know, basically Antifa are left-wing crazies. They're not that bad because they're fighting against hate. That's not true. They're full of hate themselves. So I don't know how they think they're effectively fighting hate when their hatred extends well beyond white nationalists to you and me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. There were a lot of different activists who were like, why are you in riot gear? We don't see no riot here. There was a belief by many activists, including Antifa, that the police support this kind of violence. Because Come on, do you, because do you think the police, the, the police there were there to protect white nationalists? Do you believe that? When you look at how the police respond to white nationalists as opposed to Black Lives Matter protesters, yes, you do. Look, I never like the idea of journalists getting attacked, but no one has a reason to believe, even when you look at how the police responded last year, when you look at the fact that they, they shut down the, the metro in D.C. that let these guys go in, people have reasons to doubt the police's yeah, dedication but, to eradicating racism. But thuggishness is thuggishness wherever it comes from politically, and, and we should be the first to call it out. I disagree. There you have somebody who's just straight up saying on MSNBC, yeah, act like a thug. If you're in Black Lives Matter, you're an Antifa, punch people, do whatever you want, because, you know, the cops are on the side of the bad guys. You know, I wrote in The Hill earlier this week. You can read it on thehill.com. I mean, I, I, I go into some detail there about how these anti-hate protesters hate the cops. Why is that okay? Who, who thinks that's justifiable? Oh, well, there you, there you had a journalist on national TV uh, named, what's his name, Jason Johnson, saying, yeah, that's right, they're tools of white supremacists. What do, they, do, do they not teach the First Amendment in school? I don't think they do. Do journalists not read the First Amendment? Do they not understand what it's supposed to mean? What would have happened if those white supremacists had walked into D.C. without the police there to guard them? There would have been violence, and then you would have had Black Lives Matter protesters and Antifa people getting thrown in prison because they outnumbered the white nationalists about 150 to 1. And then then you have people saying, well, no, Nazi punching is okay. Maybe Nazi killing is okay, too. That's the next step. And they'd say, well, you know, I don't know if we can really press charges against them because we don't like what they say. Keep in mind, folks, they think that these guys, these are white nationalists. They also think that, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, Majid Nawaz is an anti-Muslim extremist. Ben Shapiro has appeared in an article in the Southern Poverty Law Center's site alongside, uh, I think the New Yorker actually did a profile on uh, Spencer, the uh, white nationalist, and they, they also mentioned Ben Shapiro, who's a target of white nationalists. I mean, they're just, they're just lying about this stuff all the time. But if they can expand the categories of who's a white nationalist or white supremacist to include anybody who's worked at Breitbart, anybody who 
you know, as a, as a vocal supporter of Trump, and they can justify that violence against white nationalists, they, it's a very small leap to justify that violence against any of you. And that's what this really comes down to. They're looking for a reason, looking for an explanation to allow their emotions to take full control so that they can take their political disagreements with the right and make it about violence. And I would note that the uh, fights on the streets of Germany leading up to World War II and the Sturm Abteilung, or, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the name of the German stormtroopers of the SS and uh, the, the brown shirts and all this different stuff, it all blends together in the German. My German skills, unfortunately, are very, uh, not to say they're lackluster is being kind to me. I took it for two years in school. I took German, I took French, and I took Arabic. Uh, and speak really none of them. Uh, my French is okay. My Arabic is about 50 words now, and my German is probably 10 words. Um, but the brown shirts, the black shirts, these were fascists and communists. They were fighting on the streets of Germany. Street brawls. Those were the original anti-fascists, but the original anti-fascists that these Antifa protesters today harken back to were very violent. And were willing to use extreme violence for political ends as well once they had achieved power. They weren't pacifists. They weren't peaceful. They didn't have democratic liberalism in mind. Because ultimately when you resort to force in politics, it's clear you can't win the argument. You've been unable to win the argument. You aren't seeking converts. You are hunting heretics. And that's certainly what Antifa does. Uh, but this justification of violence against reporters and the police, that's see, this is why I won't take reporters seriously. You go, oh, Trump is so mean to us in the White House. And, oh, my God, Jim Acosta, an old lady said something to him that was mean at a rally. It's so scary. Because when actual reporters get punched in the face and get bloodied and get attacked, it's by left wing loons who support Bernie Sanders, who loved Obama, who love, you know, Nancy Pelosi and all the rest of them. And they don't want to cover that. That's not a big deal. NBC News ignored in its reporting initially that one of its own reporters had been attacked. They will justify this stuff, though. They will find someone. I, I play you the audio, right? I'm not making this stuff up. They will say this is okay. They will say police are tools of white supremacy. Well, if police are tools of white supremacy, is violence against them okay? This is not just rhetorical, folks. There have been assassinations of police officers, including a mass assassination in Dallas that was a direct response to left-wing Black Lives Matter rhetoric jammed down the throats of the American people by the press, by the media, and these so-called activists for months and months. And it led to bloodshed. And they take no responsibility for that whatsoever. And now they're going to lecture us? Now they're going to tell us that because Trump pushes back on these clowns in the media, he's inspiring violence. Where is the violence on our side? Where is it? You had a mass assassination of cops in Dallas by, by a Black Lives Matter zealot. You've had other people assassinated, including two for my old, my old PD, NYPD in New York. Two of our officers assassinated sitting in their car. Why did that guy kill them? Because of Black Lives Matter. He said so. Antifa is punching people, hitting them with, with rocks and bats and clubs. They're pulling brass knuckles off of people who were showing up at this rally in D.C. yesterday. I had somebody come up to me today in conservative media. I won't say who it was. He said, Buck, you can't go to these rallies. What are you doing? And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, 
you know, you used to do CNN, and he, and he made a little joke. He's like, I'm not saying you're famous or anything. And I said, yeah, I know I'm not. But he said, no, but all, in all seriousness, if one of these black block guys from the uh, Antifa sees you and mobs you, you know, you don't want to be the first one. You don't want to be the cautionary tale. And I said, no, I can handle a few of them, but you're right. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of them. And I can assume that they probably wouldn't know who I was, but, you know, they, they're on Twitter. They sometimes will turn on Fox News. They sometimes can do some Internet searches to see who the rising young conservatives are these days in the movement. But that was a real, that's, you know, it's just so funny to me. Jim Acosta is going to be fine. I guarantee you no one's going to attack Jim Acosta. And that's a good thing. Shouldn't be attacked. He should be, he should be mocked, not attacked. Okay? I don't want anyone from CNN getting attacked. I don't want anyone from any news organization getting attacked ever. But I'm consistent about it. You'll notice the left, well, you know, cops are going to get attacked. Journalists get attacked. If it's left-wing people attacking them, they have, they have an excuse for it. So they will excuse the actual violence on the left while decrying theoretical violence coming from right-wing rhetoric. This is why we don't trust them. This is why they're fake news. This is why they're a bunch of liars. By the way, do we have the rest of that? Uh, I wanted to finish that Cuomo, bro Cuomoism. So we stop when you, you got a sense of it, right? Um, actually, Brandon, you know what? Play the whole play it from the beginning. I want him to hear the whole thing because I don't want to be accused of taking it out of context. So play the first Cuomo clip and then the second addition to it. Okay. Two wrongs and what is right? The bigots are wrong to hit. Antifa or whomever, anarchist or malcontent or misguided, they are also wrong to hit. But fighting hate is right. And in a clash between hate and those who oppose it, those who oppose it are on the side of right. Think about it. I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. In the eyes of the law, yes. But in the eyes of good and evil, here's the argument. If you're a punk who comes to start trouble in a mask and hurt people, you're not about any virtuous cause. You're just somebody who's going to be held to the standard of doing something wrong. But when someone comes to call out bigots and it gets hot, even physical, are they equally wrong as the bigot they are fighting? I argue no. Fighting against hate matters. Now, how you fight matters, too. There's no question about that. But drawing a moral equivalency between those espousing hate and those fighting it because they both resort to violence emboldens hate, legitimizes hateful belief, and elevates what should be stamped out. He's just justifying Nazi punching. Saying, yeah, okay, maybe the law says one thing, but, you know, morally speaking. And I sit here and I say to you, you fight hate with words. And this is going to sound incredibly corny, but the real way you would fight hate is with love and understanding and, and knowledge. No, he says, if you show up in a mask and you're trying to hurt people, you're a punk, you're not good. But if you're showing up to fight hate, what bro Cuomo doesn't seem to understand is that people in the black masks are the ones who think they are fighting hate. That's the whole point. That's why there were hundreds and hundreds of them among a crowd of thousands of people who hate Donald Trump hate Republicans, uh, hate the Tea Party, hate, you know, I mean, a lot of hate in there, folks. Hate the patriarchy, hate white male Christians. You get on the whole line. You know, hate Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but they're anti-hate. 
people are deranged. They are deranged. Um, and, you know, all punches not equal. That was a very telling statement, wasn't it? You know what he's really saying here is that, you know, if you punch a right winger, maybe you're, maybe it's illegal, but, like, you're doing the right thing because, you know, you're fighting hate. This is a res- this is in this is the same press that a week ago was saying, "Oh, look at the old ladies that are at the Trump rally. They're yelling that CNN sucks because CNN does suck. How about that? Look at all the old ladies that are saying, uh, okay, that they want us to be worried about. Oh, the book, they're inspiring rhetoric. It's going to be a danger to journalists. Then journalists actually get attacked. I'm there. I see what's going on at this rally." And I had to sit around for a week while they go, well, you know, it just kind of fizzled out. And, you know, yeah, there was a little bit of violence from some left-wing people, but, you know, they're fighting hate, so it's not that big a deal. These people have no ethics. They have no morals. They are hypocrites. They want to be the moral conscience of a country, and they are immoral in their actions and in their words on a daily basis. They are losing their grip on power because of Trump. That's why they hate him so much. There is a massive transfer of power happening away from the elite establishment media. Trump is at the center of it. They think that they have to do everything in their power to stop him. And that includes making complete jackasses of themselves. I mean, this Cuomo, uh, and he was the only one who played that guy from MSNBC. There are others too, but just idiocy, just idiocy. You know, maybe they should go down there and see what it's actually like to be around these Antifa maniacs. 844-900-2825. If you want to chat, 844-900-BUCK. Team lines are open. We'll be right back. All right, lines are lit. We've got Stephen in Springfield, Massachusetts, on the line. What up, Stephen? Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for your call, buddy. Um, yeah, I was I was definitely driven to call because I've been listening to you lately, and um, I think I think you're starting to think along the lines that I do that the left is no is not really an ideology. They're just like a, a utilitarian use anything at their disposal to gain power. I, I I'm a I totally believe that they would flip everything that they believe tomorrow if it suited their political purpose. Yeah, well, I don't think that it's a pursuit of any principle. I think that power is the central goal of the left. And and I do believe that there's a there's a very different mindset that is at the heart of what it is to be a, a liberal today, what it is to be a conservative. I mean, I think it goes very deep into the core of people's identities. And I think that for liberals, because they largely uh, reject... Um, they largely reject a relationship with, well, sorry, we say traditional religion, uh, contemporary liberalism, at least rejects, uh, traditional religion, uh, their political beliefs are their religion. And so they, they view it as exactly. deeply personal and even existential. And once you start to view it in that under, through that lens, then I think it makes more sense. Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. And and the thing is, too, but but what they're doing is like so dangerous, trying to equate conservative speech with evil and, and basically just trying to say conservatives equal e- evil, equal racism, equal hatred. Uh, this is what the Nazis did to the new Jews in Nazi Germany in the 30s. Um, thank God we don't have the hyperinflation that Germany did. 
because um, socialist revolutions usually spawn from like incredibly bad economic times. Uh, lots of luck liberals with a booming economy. All right. Thank you for calling in, Stephen. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Um, one thing that uh, I did want to get to here for a moment is this newspapers that are calling across the U.S. calling for editorials about Trump's attacks on the press. You got to hear the Boston Globe and the American. This is from NBC News. The Boston Globe and the American Society of News Editors put out the call to publish editorials on Trump's escalating rhetoric about U.S. journalists. The newspapers are prepared to answer. CNN's Brian Seltzer reports that more than 100 publications are prepared to publish an editorial on Thursday. So that'll be not tomorrow, but the next day, which would make it one of the widest coordinated efforts collusion in the history of American media. Uh, quote, this dirty war on the press must end. The Boston Globe is reaching out to editorial boards across the country to propose a coordinated response. The Globe proposes to publish an editorial on August 16th on the dangers of the administration's assault on the press and ask others to commit to publishing their own editorials. Blah, blah, blah. Trump is the worst. They're all going to write at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I thought there was a very good, uh, a very good response. This from Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, that's worth playing. I, I think VDH is brilliant. Let's hear from Victor. Play four. What Trump hasn't done, this is rhetoric, he's fought back at the media what he calls fake news, but he has not jailed uh, two and two reporters like JFK did. He did not survey associate reporter, uh, the Associated Press reporters like in the way that Obama did with James Rosen at, Fo at Fox News. He didn't introduce a bill like the Roosevelt uh, allies in Congress did called the libel bill to stifle opposition. He didn't do what Hillary Clinton did in 2008 when she tried to stop that uh, Hillary documentary. So, and the final tragedy is what's not re being reported. Uh, we have the fourth highest member of the DOJ Bruce Orr, who was colluding with Fusion GPS after the election to undermine a president. And we've got, my gosh, we just had Dianne Feinstein admit that for 20 years her chauffeur was a spy for the Chinese government. And it's not news. Yep. Yep. That's not news. No one cares about any of that. Omarosa's allegations, though, that's big news. And, oh, let's have a bunch of editorials. The press is already 90% against Trump. They're convincing no one of anything here. This is just a tantrum. It is a mass coordinated media tantrum against Trump. But then again, I guess that's also called CNN's nightly lineup. Oh, be sure to tip your waitress. Um, all right, we've got to uh, talk a little bit about the struck firing coming up here and then much more. Stay right there, team. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. This is a guy who was in charge of two investigations and was political about it. He started in the Hillary Clinton email server investigation, favored her, started started digging up dirt on on Donald Trump. Everybody watched his testimony a few weeks ago. He was just a jerk with a smirk. And now he's just a sort of two-bit ex-FBI employee with a Twitter feed. 
The American people deserve an FBI that's not biased. They deserve an, uh, an FBI that's going to focus on the truth. Obviously, Peter Strzok wasn't that individual. Of course, his lawyer says that it was a railroad job. His only other option is to say, you know what? My client prejudged two major investigations. He made up his mind that Hillary Clinton was innocent before he interviewed her. He made up his mind that Donald Trump should be impeached before he bothered to interview him. And oh, by the way, he did a lot of this on the government phone and, and he violated other FBI policy. Without Peter Strzok and a handful of other individuals, this investigation would never have gotten where it is. The only reason that uh, the former director, uh, uh, Mueller, is even empowered is people like Strzok set up a false narrative. Uh, we're going to be interviewing on the 28th behind closed doors. It's a deposition. Uh, Bruce Orr. And the reality is that we're going to be asking him questions about how we came to have a false dossier that his wife was involved in and that, in fact, he made individual calls to Strzok. So it's not going to end uh, with one disgraced FBI agent. We've got more to do to clean up the, uh, the Department of Justice. Here's a prediction, folks. I think Bruce Orr is toast. Bruce Orr is going to get fired. He's the next one. Another one bites the dust. It's going to be uh, Bruce Orr getting his walking papers. How could he not? Look at what he was doing. Look at the way he conducted himself. The conflicts of interest here are enormous. Your wife is basically passing you information. She's a, a paid hatchet job person for the Hillary Clinton campaign. You're taking your wife's information as hatchet job lady. And you're using that to, to present to the DOJ to run FISA warrants? I mean, this is just crazy. It really is. And they want us to be worried about, you know, Trump calling someone the D word, a dog. Uh, they want us to think that they have our best interests at heart here as a nation. This is all about defending our, our essential institutions. You know, there was a part of me that that thought at some point the liberal left, they'd, they'd move on to issues more and it would move away from just that they would be like infants that cry themselves out, right? You know, an infants will just cry and cry. So I'm told I haven't spent much time around infants, but they'll cry and then eventually they just exhaust themselves and they'll fall asleep. I thought that the left would have to go through a period like that where this anti-Trump tantrum would exhaust them at least long enough that they would start focusing on some other things, at least long enough that there would be focuses on on other stuff out there. And I, I just don't see it. You know, it's really all about how much they hate Trump. And they've corrupted the Department of Justice. They've corrupted the FBI. I think there's going to be more people that suffer real consequences because of their actions, as they should, by the way, as they very well should. Um, and I'm still watching the situation as it plays out with Manafort, by the way. Our buddy Andy McCarthy uh, was on Fox now. You know, he's on Fox a fair amount. Andy's he's such such a good, you know, I I think you guys all probably know that a lot of the people I have on the show I'm very fond of personally. And that's that tends to be one of the things about the guests that I have on is that I generally know my guests. Uh, not always. You know, I'd say 75% uh, 75% of the time, I at least know the guest somewhat, but about 50% of the time, it's somebody that I would call a friend or at least an associate, a close associate in the business, somebody that I really respect. Uh, and he's great and, and has been somebody I've known now for seven years. Um, and he was talking about the, the Manafort case 
and how that could tell us, you know, because they didn't call any uh, witnesses. They just, the defense, the defense rests. They're just like, all right, that's what you got. Well, let's see. Let's see what happens. And people are trying to extrapolate from that. Well, a whole lot. No surprise there. Um, but here's what Andy says about it. Play clip 12. If he loses the case against Manafort was kind of presented as the big fish when he was charged because mm-hmm. uh, he was the chairman of Trump's campaign. And he's if there was any collusion, he would be at the center of it, presumably. Right. So if he loses the case, it would be a big blow. But I think the stakes for him, because this case has nothing to do with the rationale for Mueller's investigation, which is this allegation of collusion or coordination between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. The point of the case has always been to try to squeeze Manafort into cooperating with the investigation. So that's the stake. I mean, if he gets him convicted, uh, then he's got cards to play. So if he convicts him, then he can try to flip him. If he doesn't convict him, what does that tell you about this whole situation? Uh, But look, I I think I think Manafort's probably going to go down, but he's going to go down on tax charges. Could he flip Manafort? Well, that's the other question. I don't think Manafort has any of the goods. I don't think there's anything for Manafort to flip on. And then there's this part of me that just, I know this is, I'm being a little troublemaking here. I'm being a little bit of a rabble rouser, a little bit of a fire starter, if you will. But then there's this part of me that thinks, you know, it would just be sweet <laughs> if, if they get Manafort on tax charges and then Trump commutes his sentence. So that all he has to because Manafort should make financial restitution if he's guilty. I, I'm I, that's that's my sense of all tax crimes. You should have to pay back everything owed to the government, and you should have to pay an additional fine. You know, prison time though, thirty years of prison time. You'll notice the government's running up a huge debt without Manafort failing to pay them. You know. Uh, I, I just think sending somebody into putting somebody in a, in a uh, concrete box for decades because they didn't give Uncle Sam all of I'm sure Manafort, by the way, this never gets talked about. I'm sure he paid some taxes. It's not like he wasn't paying any taxes. He just didn't pay all of his taxes. Uh, but it would be really funny for me. And I, I shouldn't think this way, but I do. Sometimes I just got to own the libs. You know, I just want the libs to get a little owned. I get a little frustrated. They need they need some ownage. And. It would be fun if he were to just uh, commute the sentence down or maybe, I mean, maybe even pardon him just because why not? And once he's paid back the money, once he's made financial restitution that, that he gets pardoned because he has been targeted for political reasons. That's just the truth. You know, that's that's what's going on here. You know, Democrat. This is also why, uh, you know, Democrats are just better at, at at weaponizing bureaucracies because they're of a bureaucratic mindset. And very few of them are willing to stand up and say, because of a principle, we should not use our full leverage against this conservative. Be- because there's something else at stake here, we should we should uh, hold back and not just give in to our desire to uh, own the conservatives. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Oh, but, but the Dersh, we got the Dersh wing in T- uh, two on Struck. I meant to get to this one. Another point that never gets talked about here. Why is it that the only people who recuse themselves from very politically sensitive informa- uh, investigations are on the right? Loretta Lynch never recused herself from the Hillary Clinton email investigation, even after the tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton, that debacle, never recused herself. So wh- why, why is it that you'll, you'll notice this pattern, right? 
Jeff Sessions recused himself, but did Peter Strzok recuse himself because of his biases? Did Comey recuse himself? Has Rosenstein? No, no, they don't recuse themselves. Uh, Dersh brings up this point. Play eight. He should have recused himself once he sent <laughs> there those you go. messages that didn't only say I don't like Trump, but I'm going to stop him. We need an insurance policy that created at least the impression of bias. All we know is it appears that he could have been biased. And that's what the inspector general found, that the, the appearance of bias was enough. So he should have recused himself. He's a professional. And his failure to recuse himself, I think, is what led to his firing. I think what led to his firing is that he is single-handedly tarnished the reputation of the FBI. And for people who are going to sit down, remember, the FBI has tremendous power. They sit down with you, they talk to you about an investigation, and you lie to them, you go to prison. They have a lot of power. Maybe too much power, some people would say, quite honestly, but discussion for another time. But they have a lot of power, and their word and their integrity is everything. Because they're taking away people's freedom often based on that. There's a reason why FBI agents have to attest in writing and under oath uh, attest to whatever it is that their statement is. There, there, there's a reason that the charging document, that the indictment has, you know, FBI agents saying, I swear that this is the truth, basically. I'm forgetting the exact language. And Peter Strzok has made that now a little harder for them, a little less believable, a little less credible. And I can just tell you this, if I were an FBI agent, I would be furious. I would be furious. All right, we've got more on the Trump Tower meeting coming up here in just a few minutes, team. I will talk to you about that and much more. Stay with me. Secretary Pompeo has announced our strategy very clearly. Iran must halt nuclear enrichment, halt the development of nuclear ballistic missiles, uh, withdraw their forces from Syria, and stop, stop aiding proxy militias and militant groups like Hezbollah. We're calling for change in regime behavior, not regime change. But I don't see how this Iranian regime can do what we're asking them to do to get back to the table. I think what we're asking them to do would be an anathema to their national security strategy. And I think that's where the rubber is going to meet the road, frankly. Let's see how the Iranian economy continues to struggle and, and, and whether protests develop. Uh, Iran is extraordinarily concerned about the potential for a populist uprising of the sort we saw in the Middle East during the Arab Spring and what we've seen in Iran with the Green Movement. Yeah, I, I think we got Iran, actually, frankly, back on their heels a little bit here. First of all, their, their economy is struggling. Their currency, the real, is, is in, in absolute freefall. They've, they've overcommitted themselves in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen. They've stretched themselves rather significantly in doing that, certainly financially. They have got unrest in the streets as a matter of norm now by their people because of the actual economic impact on their everyday lives. And they are demonstrating, you know, for the first time, seriously against the regime. You know, you just heard some real analysis there from a couple of different folks, Daniel Hoffman and General Jack Keane over in Fox News, on what's going on in Iran. And this brings me back to one of the areas of greatest Trump derangement syndrome out there, and that is President Trump can't be successful on foreign policy because it would make the elites and the establishment question too much about themselves. And so they are actively rooting against the president, whether it's on Iran, on North Korea, any foreign policy issue, and they are trying to convince their fellow Americans that President Trump is already failing on these issues. Just as an experiment, as, uh, as I was preparing for the segment today, 
I did a quick Google search on Iran and news. And you know what the first stories that pop up are? I mean, this is just a, this will just give you a, a some sense of what, of what we're dealing with here. CNN, Washington Post, and uh, some oil thing. Uh, but the CNN piece is, why sanctions against Iran won't make America safer? The Washington Post piece is, U.S. sanctions on Iran hit an unintended target. Ordinary Iraqis. You go through, uh, oh, Politico, Trump's Iran sanctions are backfiring in Iraq. Uh, Newsweek, Iran shows off ballistic missiles as tensions rise. Uh, You know, guys, I, I just, at what point do they wake up and say to themselves, you know, we could just tell stories about what's happening without always trying to do it so that we stack the deck for our favored political narrative. Uh, but they won't, I suppose. They, they'd rather just hang on. And, and this is really about, and this is what's so crazy, the Iran situation for most of the press here down the street for me at the Washington Post and CNN and the other, the other very uh, hoity-toity, super fancy elite news outlets out there, uh, it's really about Obama. Isn't that remarkable? It's really about the Obama legacy because they know that What Trump has been accomplishing, whether it's on regulatory rollback, any number of issues, is regulatory reform. He's been pulling back these regulations that have been hurting small businesses, that have been hurting the economy. And that was really Obama's main series of actions when he was in office. It was executive orders and Obamacare and a terrible foreign policy with a lot of bowing and apologizing. That was what defined the Obama administration in terms of what they did, what the what that White House accomplished or failed to accomplish. So the arguments over Iran that you're seeing now are much more about protecting Obama's legacy and trying to create a perception that no matter what Trump does, he's failing. No matter what pressure he puts Iran under, it's not enough or it's not a good idea or it's counterproductive. In many ways, the media lies to you more about foreign policy than domestic policy. Because they think they can get away with it. And there's greater reliance on foreign news bureaus to bring us information about what's going on in all these places. Right. So it's just a natural inclination to say, oh, well, CNN must know what's going on in Iran better than most folks do. Right. But just like with so many other issues, it's much uh, posturing. You know, you, you see this with the liberal media on on any number of of issues of, of 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 concern, right? That their their concern trolling is incredible, but just their general posturing around pretending to be concerned, you know, the media doesn't really care about. I mean, the, the people that work in the news bureaus at the top and that are flying around in private jets and going on the Tonight Show and all this stuff, they don't care about poor people. They like to talk about how much they care about poor people because it makes them feel good about themselves makes them feel virtuous, but they don't spend time with poor people. They're not really trying to help poor people. They do stories about how much they love the poor and and the working man, generally speaking also around minorities, because it's useful for them to do those stories. And on foreign policy, you always have to remember it's, it's largely a reflection of how they view the world based on what they see here at home. So people who think that... Uh, for example, America is a racist country. There's 
there's white supremacy uh, that's a structural constant and the police are racist and there's these power dynamics and 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 all these things that are so negative with you know the the white male oppression and the patriarchy and all that stuff those same people i guarantee you are going to view the plight of the palestinians as being of great importance to them and they're going to be they're going to pretend that they're tremendously concerned with you know uh military interventions in the islamic world because it's really just about how quote, we don't like brown people or, quote, you know, we we hate Muslims or something. Right. I mean, that's the you'll see the same, you know, the the ideological disposition of people here at home then gets pushed into the international policy sphere. And this is why you see with, with the media, every opportunity to run a story on our foreign policy is really an opportunity to run commentary about domestic politics. They care not about what really happens in Iran. They care about the legacy of the previous administration on Iran. And that's why they've been hiring, by the way, hiring up all these former Obama foreign policy types. You know, they want them out there. They want the echo chamber, which, remember, Ben Rhodes said they created inside the White House. They want that now to be transposed from the White House into the media. And that's what's been happening. That is what has been accomplished so far. Um, but. Trump's not having it. And uh, on Iran and on Turkey, he is bringing the pain to some countries that need to need to know who the boss is. And unlike years prior years prior with Trump in charge, the boss is America. All right, that'll be eight minutes. So what really happened at Trump Tower? If you listen to enough Democrats, it was treason. It was collusion. It was treasonous collusion. It was all of these things. But what if it was something else? We're joined now by Lee Smith. He's an investigative journalist who's got a piece up on real clear investigations. The 2016 Trump Tower meeting looks increasingly like a setup by Russian and Clinton operatives. Lee Smith, great to have you on the show, sir. Hey, thanks very much for having me on, Buck. I really appreciate it. All right, so tell um, me what you what you're able to find out in your investigation because you know up to this point we've been told, oh the the right. Trump Tower meeting this is the centerpiece of the Russia collusion allegation. What's the other side of this? Why was this a setup? Right, I mean look, everyone has tried to well not everyone but lots of the press and of course the as you were describing before the proponents of collusion um, they've tried to picture this meeting in one particular way from a particular angle. And the picture is Donald Trump Jr. meets Russian lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya. Therefore, collusion. She'd offered him dirt on on Hillary Clinton. He took the meeting, as it says in the famous Steele dossier, the Trump administration or the Trump campaign was eager to take dirt on the Clinton campaign on its rivals this meeting in the Trump Tower proves that that was really the case, therefore collusion. What is not being explained, and this has been out there for a while, it's just, again, much of the press and the collusion proponents won't go into any detail on this, but frankly, it's quite simple. The Russian lawyer was a client of Glenn Simpson's and Fusion GPS, the same firm that produced the dossier for Hillary Clinton and hired Christopher Steele to write the dossier, unearthing all these astonishing uh, alleged ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. This person, Glenn Simpson, Fusion GPS, 
was actually working on behalf of pro-Kremlin interests with this woman, Natalia Veselnitskaya. That seems pretty damning, Lee. Uh, why yeah. Why doesn't this get uh, more more attention to this discussion? I mean, are, are we really to believe, just so we're all clear, that it's a coincidence that the woman who right. called for the meeting in Trump Tower, the Russian woman who called for that meeting, just happened to be directly connected to Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS? That That's quite yeah. a coincidence. Yeah, 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 exactly. She was working, not disconnected, she was working with them on a project on behalf of pro-Kremlin interests, the different job. It was to undo American sanctions on Putin, on, on Putin regime officials and other Putin associates. So Glenn Simpson, again, the guy who was supposed to be uncovering Trump's uh, relations with Russia, was working on a pro-Kremlin project to undo American legislation. Why hasn't it been framed like this? It's for the same reason that all these other ridiculous things are just taken for granted. For instance, let's just look at the fact that the FBI had a counterintelligence investigation on Michael Flynn, right? Michael Flynn was a retired three-star general and the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And people actually believe, we're actually supposed to believe that this was legitimate. This smells like third world exactly. Carter Page there was a FISA warrant on Carter Page. The man had helped the FBI. Did no one at FBI headquarters where they got the FISA warrant on Carter Page? Did they not call up the FBI field office in New York to find out that Carter Page, a, a graduate of the Naval Academy and a, a retired Naval officer, that this guy had actually helped out the FBI in 2013, roll up a uh, Russian spying in New York? It's astonishing the number of different things that people have shoved, the press and collusion proponents have shoved down our throats. Still Clinton operatives and the press are shoving down our throats on this, which don't bear, which don't don't withstand scrutiny if you look at them at all closely. Tell me about this connection between Veselnitskaya, the Russian lawyer who went to that Trump Tower meeting, and, right. and Russian-American lobbyist Rinat Akhmetshin. Yes. Yeah, Akhmetshin is, uh, is, a, is a, apparently a well-known figure in Washington, working frequently on behalf of pro-Kremlin interests. Uh, he was also in that meeting at the Trump Tower, along with Veselnitskaya, and the two of them were working again on this project to, un, to repeal the Magnitsky um, the Magnitsky Act, which is sanctions against Putin regime officials. Now, if we come up further to the present, we see last week the release of certain documents, texts, um, emails, notes, um, other documents uh, showing, a, showing the relationship between DOJ official, senior DOJ official Bruce Orr, Glenn Simpson again, and expert spy Christopher Steele. They're speaking about different things. Well, they referred one point to a Russian, former Russian intelligence agent uh, now living in the United States. Now, we don't have any evidence yet. This appears to point to that uh, Russian-American lobbyist who was in the Trump meeting, um, who was in the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016. So, again, I want to I want to I want to make it clear we don't have, have any evidence yet. But I think it's important to look at that meeting. Who were the people in that meeting? Uh, what were they what were they doing? This is not about collusion. It's about something else.
Do you ever think, and we've only got a, a, a less than a minute here, Lee, I yeah. just want to know, do you, do you think we're going to get the answers here? Well, what do you need to know to make this thing finally all come together? Um, I, I mean, I think we're, I, I believe we're going to get more documents. I know that, uh, you know, congressional committees are asking for more documents, and I believe they'll eventually be redacted and we'll see them. But, I, I mean, I find it astonishing that two years, we're two years, after these bizarre accusations against Donald Trump and the Trump campaign have started, I, I mean, I, I think we're going to have a clearer picture. I think we have a pretty good picture right now of what happened. I think we will get a much clearer picture. But how long that people will continue to push this nonsense? And I'm, I'm, it's bad for the country. It's bad for our public sphere. It's bad for the press. It's bad for the FBI. Uh, DOJ, so yeah, uh, Lee, I, Lee, I, I agree. Lee, Lee, we got to leave it there. We got to leave it there. But thank you so much for uh, your work on this. Lee Smith, everybody, investigative journalist. We'll be back with Roll Call. All right, let's get into Roll Call for today, my friends. If you want to be a part of the action, you know where to go. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, Mimi writes, I would like to recommend Win Bigly. In a world, uh, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter by Scott Adams, creator of the Dilbert cartoons. I highly recommend it because I think his observations about persuasion techniques would serve you well in your career, giving you even greater ninja powers, and because he's an interesting case study on the left eating its own, it would also be a good interview. All right, uh, Mimi, thank you for the suggestion, and we will uh, look into it. I will check it out for sure. Eric writes welcome to me uh i think eric is a bot i don't know if he's a russian bot but uh yeah that's not a that's not a thing that you write to somebody it doesn't make sense eric the bot spencer writes hey buck great show as always on the alex jones issue i never see your posts on facebook like never once since i've liked your page i spend quite a bit of time scrolling during my night job and have yet to see one post by you that seems strange. By the way, Range 15 is a film by Ross Patterson and Matt Best and the Black Rifle Boys and Friends. A silly, funny kind of movie. Keep up the good fight. I keep trying to watch Rising when I can. Crystal's comments almost ruin it for me, but I'm still trying. Stansberry and the Freedom Hut are still great. Bring back Shields High when you can, and I'll listen. Cheers from Spencer. Well, thank you, Spencer. Working on all those things. I appreciate you. Uh, listening to all the different uh, projects I'm involved in. It really, really means a lot. Thank you very much for that. Michael, it's a great book that you'll truly appreciate. Don't Make Me Pull Over by Richard Rate. Uh, the story of the great American automobile family vacation. His family's ride was a 1975 Lincoln town car. I recall yours being a Cadillac of some sort. Yes, that's true. It was a 1988 blue Cadillac uh, sedan. I forget what the model was. The thing you've missed out on living in Manhattan is the great American road trip, not the family vacation deal, but the long trips to nowhere, particularly uh, with your close friends. You know, Michael, we used to do these family trips. You know, some of you saw my, my uncle James, uncle James, we call him when uh, I posted on Facebook, he's a, a locksmith and wood carver in Virginia. We used to drive down as a family uh, to see my uncle and my grandmother in Charlottesville, Virginia, at least once a year. Sometimes I think we made it down twice a year for major holidays. And there were six of us in that Cadillac. The air conditioner in the Cadillac was uh, was broken for a good period of that time. And 
we had some adventures there. Uh, there were some speeding tickets. There was a fender bender here or there. Uh, almost ran out of gas a couple of times. My dad's a wild man on those family trips. Um, but uh, it was always good stuff. And I'll tell you this. We were fascinated. We got to Charlottesville. There's all this you know, beautiful history and the University of Virginia and the quadrangle and all that stuff or whatever they call it. And we were fascinated because there was something called a mall there. An outdoor mall. A place where you can just go to all these different stores. I'm sorry, indoor mall. A place you can go to all these different stores in this environment where there are trees and skylights and things. And when I was a kid, we used to think the mall was so... Because we didn't really have malls like that in New York. We just had stores. Also, we did other things. We went to the University of Virginia, and we went to uh, some other places down there. Went to grandmother's house. The grandmother had a... Uh, she always had a lot of animals, so I like that. We'd visit. There were cats and dogs running around all the time, so that was always fun. But we had, trust me, we had some road trips. You know, you catch I-95 at the wrong time of year trying to make your way from, you know, Thanksgiving time, for example, from New York City to Charlottesville. That's, it's supposed to be, I think, a six-hour drive. Very easily turns into an eight- or nine-hour drive with some traffic. Uh, so, yeah. We used to play a game with my dad. We'd say, Dad, what would what a fight? A blue whale or a pterodactyl? My dad, to his credit, would, would really walk us through the ins and outs. You know, the whale clearly has size, weight. The pterodactyl has maneuverability in the air. And they couldn't really fight because one's in the air and one's in the water. But, you know, if you somehow made a go of it, got to figure that whale tail probably comes out with the victory. Dad, who would win a fight? A brown bear or a... Black bear, but the black bear is really angry and also has rabies. You know, we we would play this game. My, my parents, I remember that stuff. Uh, William writes, Buck, who in the FBI or the federal government can I trust with information that I have involves uh, criminal activity? Uh, William, I I just I would call your local FBI office, man. I I don't I don't have anybody. First of all, of, this is maybe an opportunity to say most folks in the FBI. Uh, are very trustworthy, law-abiding, doing a great job. Don't let all this stuff about the anti-Trumpism and everything else, don't let all that mess things uh, mess things up for you in terms of the, whether or not you're willing to trust the FBI in general. Th- that, would be going, that would be going too far. Uh, that would be an, an unnecessary, um, unnecessary place to take all this. Uh, most folks in the FBI, like I said, you can trust. So, uh, William, I would say call whatever the closest FBI field office is to you and tell them what information you got. And this is how, by the way, I think people always assume that there's some other way that criminal cases often get launched and, and then solved. Uh, it, it is people who tell law enforcement about things. That, that's a very big way. It's not always that law enforcement, you know, there's a dead body and they got to find out who did it. Sometimes they get a phone call. They're like, this thing's going on. And that's that's how they start the investigation. So by all means, William, give them a, give them a ring and uh, good luck to you. Mark writes, Shields High Buck. I had a quick thought regarding the unsealing of classified documents by President Trump. My theory goes like this. Maybe he doesn't want to declassify because of the harm it would cause the country. Point being that the corruption goes so deep it could hurt us more than it helps us. Thanks, Mark. Um... No, Mark, I, you know, it's, it's, you have an idea there and it's plausible, but I don't think it is correct. I think that what keeps Trump from declassifying it is all of the 
criticism he would receive, all of the outrage he would be subjected to for interfering in this sacred investigation known as the Mueller probe. And I think that's what I think that's what holds him back at this point. Uh, I think that. Uh, you know, also, I'm of the mind that the DOJ would just be unwilling to release the information, even if Trump said release it. I think they would just say no, and then it would go to a court. Uh, they would take it to court. That's that's what I think would happen. And people say, Buck, how is that? You'd fire the person that refused. Okay, you fire that one, you fire the next one. How many people are you going to fire if none of them, if none of them were, are willing to do it? What happens then? So just something to think about. Uh, Evan, next up here. Oh, Evan's got the GoFundMe for Peter Strzok, which had a $350,000 goal. And Evan wrote me, this was a while ago, that in the first 12 hours, this guy has raised 150 grand, basically. WTF. Evan, you took the words or the acronym right out of my mouth. Uh, but it's it's not really surprising. Uh, you, you, McCabe raised, I think, over half a million. All these hashtag resistance anti-Trumpers know that they can count on cashing in on Trump derangement syndrome and that these people will... Uh, you know, that people will come to their aid, will assist them. They're going to have they're going to have even better jobs than they've ever had. They're going to make more money than they've ever had. This is what the left does. It's very seductive. You know, if you become a, a warrior for progressivism, if you become an enemy of truth and strap on your helmet for the left wing in this country, you'll always have good. You'll have even better jobs than you've ever had, more money than you've ever had, more social acclaim than you've ever had. But you'll be a sellout who's harming your country and has no integrity. So there is that. That is the trade-off that is offered to people in these uh, situations. And unfortunately, far too many anti-Trumpers, we we know what side of it they come down on. Uh, next here, Josh writes, I'm a huge fan. Best show on radio. Thank you, Josh. Your Dune quote describes the left better than anyone could. Keep it up. Shields high. Oh, Josh, very much, uh, very much appreciative of your kind words, sir. Uh, Michael writes, Buck, Spike Lee will go on Anderson Cooper and spew false propaganda, but I bet Spike's bank account he'd never venture into the Freedom Hut to debate a single thing he said on Cooper and win. That goes for LeBron and all the other misinformed celebs spreading liberal lies. There's a silent coup based in lies. With personal gain for the individuals involved, stay strong in your jihad for truth and shield tie. Michael, you're correct. No, no fancy rich libs will come on the show to debate me on any of this stuff. Uh, that, you know, and that's just the way it is for now. But that will change at some point. And in the meantime, um, thank you very much for your note. Thanks for listening, team. That's going to be it for today in the hut. Got much more coming up tomorrow from New York City. The Freedom Hut up there. Shield tie. Let's say you've got this resume on your desk. You've been looking for weeks, maybe months to find the perfect person. And you've got this one resume that sticks out in your mind is this is who we need. This is our new CFO. This is our new head of business development, whatever the case may be. Right. But is this person really who they say they are? Have they gone to these schools, worked at these places? Are they presenting themselves as they really are? If you want to answer that question, whether you are a startup or a Fortune 100 company, you need to call my friends at Global Verification Network. I know the CEO of this company. I know their ethos. I know how they do their business. And in the background investigation and vetting company world, they are the best. It's also a dual certified veteran owned company. 
So support a veteran and support your own business interests by making sure you've got the best background investigators in the business. Call 877-695-1179, 877-695-1179, or go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com.